All right. So much going on on Thursdays throughout the fall, and so we've got people coming and going, but I'm glad you're here. We're going to study the kings of Israel and Judah tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll hop into it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to study your word. We know you've got a plan in many years of history that we will cover tonight. You will show your plan unfolding in terms of your ultimate king that is coming, the king that will rule as the Christmas passages that we often quote remind us. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be the one who reigns in the on the throne of David, as it says. And I, I pray that we would recognize the ups and downs of what goes on in the monarchy of Israel, that we would really long for what I think historians have said is really the most efficient yet the most dangerous form of government to have a, a monarch, to have a king, to have one person that uh, rules and rules sovereignly. And yet in all the failures in the book of First and Second Kings, we pray that we could see with a uh, kind of anticipation in our mind's eye the one day when there will be a king that reigns not only in the New Jerusalem, but in that mediatorial kingdom, that intermediate kingdom there in the millennial phase. We look forward to the day when our faith will be sight, when the one that died for us, we will be able to behold with our own eyes. And we look forward to your coming. And we know it could be at any time. We know our world is a mess. And we pray, God, that we would not be discouraged, that we would take heart, as you told us, knowing that in this world we'll have tribulation, but we must recognize you're going to overcome this world. You have overcome it at the cross, and one day you'll take your great power and begin to reign. We look forward to that and we thank you for all these concepts that are related to the monarchy, the idea of a king and reigning and kingdom and government and all these concepts that are tied together in our Christology, our understanding of who we worship, who we pray through. And God, we know that these things are established, at least historically for us, in the books that we're about to study tonight. So give us a good and insightful time studying your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which is an ambitious chunk of scripture to get through. Let's see if we can do that tonight, starting with First Kings, talking a little bit about authorship. Now, like we saw last time, some of these books are filled with admissions that these are compiled books, compiled from various sources. As chapter 11, verse 41 says, the books of the Acts of Solomon, which we don't have uh, access to, and even the reference to the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel in chapter 14 and 15, which we can rightly assume based on the timeline, this is not the book we know of as the Chronicles, at least not in the form that we have them. And again, in chapter 14 and 15, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. So we know, much like the Gospel of Luke that we're studying on the weekend, that uh, the historian put this together under the guidance of God's Spirit. As Jesus said, this is part of the scripture that is God-breathed, and so we understand the authority of it that Jesus affirms for us, who existed before the incarnation and speaks with all authority and proved it to us through the resurrection. Nevertheless, we're not really sure who wrote this, and it's good to remember, much as we did with First and Second Samuel, that this was originally and initially one book. It was divided for the sake of content in terms of its uh, massive length to be able to divide that into two separate books. And so when we're talking about who wrote First and Second Kings, we don't have anything stated in the text that would give us any clues. We would have to rely on the oral tradition of the Jews and the Christians and taking it back as far as we can go. The suggestion and the affirmation is that Jeremiah the prophet wrote it. And if you remember that Jeremiah, in at least in the opening timeline that we gave you in the first week, is that prophet that writes near the end of the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah that we're going to study tonight. 
and writes the book of Lamentations. He's got a lot of time there as he enters into the captivity, and it makes sense chronologically that he would reflect back and compile the annals of history and the chronicles of the kings and write this book, although we don't have any passage we can point to to prove that. Uh, the date, and I'm talking now about the whole book, First and Second Kings, which is two books to us, the last dated event that we have at the end of the book in Second Kings chapter 25 that we are seeing there, the fall of the, the southern kingdom, 561, as things that surround uh, what, 20, 20 plus years, 25 years after the destruction of the temple. That last dated event that we can pin down is 561. Of course, all of these are BC, as I say every week, with no mention of what would be very important and critical and hailed as and celebrated as a very important event, the decree of Cyrus to go back and rebuild. And since that's not there, and we know that took place in 539, and no one would write about the Babylonian captivity and being hauled off to Babylon and the promise even of restoration, which is in the book and, and is all throughout the prophetic works of the prophets that are contemporary with the book of First and Second Kings. If that's not mentioned, we can be safe in, in assuming that it, it hadn't taken place yet. Therefore, it's got to be between these two dates, the last recorded event, 561, and the fact that uh, we have no mention of Cyrus's decree or the actual historic command to allow the Israelites to go back, then we say it's taking place between 561 and 539 during the exile. Pretty safe assumption there. The time frame for us, just to give us first Kings now, I know it's one book, but the book we're studying first, which is odd because we interrupt our flow, as we'll see on the back of your worksheet, working through the Kings. We'll have to interrupt that to introduce second Kings, which most people don't do, but figure that's the way we're studying it as two books. So first Kings, it starts with King Solomon. This is not a political party, but I put you after his name for uh, during the United Kingdom. And, and he, the king of the United Kingdom, the third king, starts in 971 in First Kings chapter 1. We see that. And it ends with the king of the north here, Ahaziah, in 851. And so we look at the time frame from 971 in First Kings. That's the first historical marker to 851 with the uh, king of the north, Ahaziah, which is in the middle of the list of kings, if you were to put these books together. So the year is covered. You've got a 120-year period. That's a long period of historical chronicling in this book, in just the book of First Kings. Main concept, as we said the first night when we gave the overview to the book of First Kings, was that the kingdom divides in half, a very significant happening in the history of Israel and something that we can't understand the Old Testament without keeping in mind as we read. You've got to read the Old Testament thinking, was this before the split or after the split? Uh, it's just as important, I suppose, as the Exodus or the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, or even the fall and the captivity of the Assyrians in the north. Nevertheless, so the division of God's nation. That was our key word and key concept, as you remember. Our key chapter is chapter 12. No comment there. That's when the kingdom splits in half. Our outline, which is super, super simple here, is that we have the reign of Solomon in chapters 1 through 11. We'll talk about him in a minute. Solomon, King Solomon reigns from chapter 1 to chapter 11. And then we have, which is odd because it's all initially one book, we should have the remainder of First and second kings being the whole divided kingdom, but instead we'll call it part one. So the divided kingdom part one is chapters 12 through the end of first kings chapter 22. You follow that? We'll see the second half of that in the second book. All right. Was that fast? We went through half a page already, almost. King Solomon. 
I know you know the, the name. I know you know the character. But remember, David is old. That's how the book begins. He's 70 years old, which, by the way, as I keep trying to remind you of the descending age of the people after the flood, the post-Diluvian world. He's called in in passages of scripture dying at a a good old age here, which in reality is pretty young age if you compare him to Moses. Nevertheless, uh, he's he's at 70. He's weak and infirm. And it's clear uh, to all Israel that we need a new king. Adonijah, who's David's, we assume, his oldest son. We're guessing it's his oldest son. It makes sense that it's his oldest son. He seeks kingship. Now, David, unfortunately, didn't make a public declaration as to who the next king should be. And that was a mistake on his part, at least for the sake of his son, that he had promised uh, that he wanted Solomon to be the king. He's promised that to Bathsheba, as you might remember. And so Adonijah starts in the first chapter of 1 Kings to try and take the kingship of Israel from uh, David. And of course, David had secured the borders and it was a great time to become the king. I mean, he was a warrior and fought hard for the security of the nation. The borders were secure. David's promise was honored. He promised Bathsheba that, that her son, Solomon, would be the king. And thanks to Nathan, the prophet, you remember, a very powerful person in the kingdom, and Zadok, the priest, who was obviously a very important person in the kingdom, they were helping through all of this turmoil in trying to see uh, Solomon become the king. And that was hard. In the absence of that clear and public statement by David, there was a lot of upheaval in this uh, period of time. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet helped see this through. A lot of chaos and unrest as we open up the book of 1 Kings. Solomon, you might remember, one of the most important things we remember about Solomon, though his life at the end doesn't seem to reflect all the wisdom he was hailed as having, he had all that wisdom because when God said, great, here you are, the new young king, king to be, I'll grant you whatever you want. What, what is it that you want? And, and Solomon, you might remember in that vision, in that moment that he has with God, says that what I really want is wisdom because in his humility, he says, I'm young and inexperienced and what I need is wisdom to rule this people of yours. And God was uh, impressed with that response, so impressed. He said, you could have asked for what everyone would ask for if they found a genie in the bottle and rubbed the, the, you know, the, the lamp and out comes the genie. And of course, uh, you didn't ask for any of that. So I'm gonna give you what you've asked for, wisdom to be a wise king and all the other things that other people would have asked for in terms of riches and fame, which is exactly what God gives him in the largest measure ever. This is the golden era of Israel. I mean, there was no better period. When the kingdom is united, certainly as it relates to the temples we're about to talk about, you have uh, the warrior was your dad who basically secured you a place in, in this inner, you know, this, this geopolitical situation in the ancient Near East, and you've got money flooding in, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth in many ways, and this was uh, a perfect time to be the king, and there was no greater time. They had the wealth, they had the security, uh, everything was going really well for Israel, and you had even a king who asked for wisdom, and that's what God was excited to give him. And so Solomon prospered greatly, and I say he did, but his whole nation did. It was a time of great prosperity for everyone in Israel. And the most magnificent thing that they did is they built Solomon's temple. We call it Solomon's temple. Of course, I put that in parentheses because it's not his temple. It's God's temple. We call it Solomon's temple because it now is going to be uh, known as in the greatest time in Israel's history, at least to date, you've got someone who was forbidden, David, to build the, the temple because he was a man of warfare and bloodshed. And God said, I'm going to have your son during peacetime build this temple and so he does and you remember the maps and kind of drawings i gave you last week 
And, and this is the city of David, which if you've been to Israel, is all downhill, literally down the Kidron Valley from what is modern, I say modern, it's, the, it's today's old Jerusalem with the old Turkish walls surrounding it. So the temple is going to be built north of the palace, and the palace is going to be built in, a, in an extravagant, opulent way. But above that, and you remember the threshing floor that was purchased when David had numbered the troops and was being punished, and he prayed to God, and the, the, the plague stopped, and he goes and he buys that piece of property on the threshing floor of Aruna's threshing floor, which is always at a place where you need some wind, you need the breeze. It's a beautiful spot. If you've been there, you know it's a picturesque spot, it's a breezy spot, and that is where the temple is going to be built. Now remember, as I gave you this picture last time, uh, do you see in the red there the city of David down south? And you don't see much action there when you go there as a tourist today. Most of the action is up on the Temple Mount where you see the Dome of the Rock Mosque, the third most holy site for uh, Islam today, which prevents uh, the Jews from building another temple where they'd like to build the temple, at least the zealous zealous Orthodox Jews. Nevertheless, what's going to happen in uh, Solomon's day, he's going to move the city of David up up the hill. Basically, he's expanding the city to have its most holy site at the highest place in the city of Jerusalem. And so this is where the temple is going to be built. One artist's rendition of that, you you can see it here. The city of David kind of grows and you have at the very top, everyone's going to walk up to the temple, which as a matter of fact, the way all the geography is described in the Bible when it comes to Jerusalem. Everyone walks up to Jerusalem, starting from when everyone lived just south of it, because it is uh, quite a ways above sea level. It's not like we would say we go up to L.A. and down to San Diego. No matter where you were coming from, north, south, east, or west, you always spoke of going up to Jerusalem. But it all started when you were going to the holy place, the temple, and that was the place you walked from your house down south up. The ESV study Bible, if you have one, will probably show you a more accurate view. This one looks kind of silly in the sense that everyone just lived within the walls of the old Jebusite city or David's city. Actually, people lived all around it, we can safely assume from archaeology. Nevertheless, you can see the ascending nature of of the city, and we're up at the very top of this, if you can make it out, where David got that threshing floor, and Solomon, his son, is now going to build the temple. Now, remember, we started by understanding what the tabernacle was, which was a tent. It was the mobile place of, of worship, and we saw, even in Judges, the kind of uh, obscurity that uh, this temple fell into. We saw it at Shiloh. We saw it at a couple other cities, but it wasn't, didn't have that central feature until David took the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to Jerusalem because as a man after God's own heart, he was very concerned with the center uh, and symbolic piece of worship that should be the avenue through which we think of God in the Old Testament through the ceremony. So this basic tabernacle structure was taken up to that place where the Ark of the Covenant was then going to rest And one day it was going to be replaced in Solomon's lifetime, in his son's lifetime, with the temple. Now you can imagine just going to worship in what looked like a nomadic tent with a fence all around it made of uh, curtains. And then you've got the temple. You're about to establish yourself as a nation uh, with a kind of solid and, and stable, permanent facility called Solomon's Temple, which is right where the Dome of the Rock Mosque is today. And I know for a while there, some scholars like to say maybe it was in a little different place, maybe it was a little 100 yards this way, or 200 yards that way, or maybe it was 50 yards here, and maybe you could build the temple right next to the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And all my study and 
all my reading on the archaeology of the Temple Mount, I think it's exactly, exactly in the very spot. Matter of fact, the Dome of the Rock, which they put over the rock that they believe that Mohammed took his midnight flight from, that rock was probably right there in all of our studies where the Holy of Holies was. It is the exact same place. And so this temple was built on that spot. And uh, this little architecture or this little rendering of it from Logos software is even named the pillars. Remember, that's one of the features when Solomon builds the temple here in First Kings. Even the two pillars at the front, Jachin and Boaz, are named. And there's probably, uh, there's pomegranates around. It's a very elaborate building. And you see all the elements, basically, that we saw in the portable tabernacle. But now you've got a stone altar instead of that uh, altar that was built to be moved and taken down and, and moved and carted from place to place. The molten sea is much larger. Uh, and on the inside, if you were to open this up, if you can see this, now the feature we have in the Holy of Holies is some depiction of the, ser- uh, the cherubim that we don't quite know what looked like. Often they're depicted like this in people and scholars' renderings of it. Some Something like uh, lions or something that, you know, has, is, is a creature with wings that span from each of the walls of the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant. And then, of course, the Ark of the Covenant itself, the box, the Ark means box, the box of the covenant where the covenant tablets are. You even had a, a top on that called the mercy seat, the top of the box, and you had cherubim on that with their wings touching each other. So now you had this interesting inner sanctum, which of course the high priest could only enter into that room once a year on Yom Kippur. So all the basic same elements here. You've got more lampstands. You've got more elaborate utensils. You've got all the basic things, the altar of incense, the showbread, and then around the temple, the priest's rooms, kind of like the vestries in the old churches where you prepared to do uh, the work. You bake the bread, you, you mix the incense, you mix the anointing oil. Maybe a better look at it, if you can see here, you can see maybe a better picture of at least our guess as to what the cherubim might have looked like within the Holy of Holies, their wings stretching across the whole squared room with the ark sitting underneath it. The veil separating the holy place, which is the whole room, which is like a shoebox. I mean, it's not small, but it's like that, that dimension. And then in the back corner is a square, a cube called the Holy of Holies. You'd walk past all the lampstands. Of course, no windows. It was all lit by the lampstand. Now, to give you a sense of the, the size of it, let me give you the relative size. The tabernacle was 150 by 75 feet, the layout of the court, the tabernacle court. To compare that to a football field, you'll see it's not very big. It's about half that size. Matter of fact, it would turn sideways within a football field, and you've got 300 feet by 150 feet. Well, 150 feet wide on a football field, that was how long the tabernacle was by 75 feet. Now, Solomon's temple, you can see, was bigger, considerably bigger, but still not quite as big as football field, and yet elaborate, expensive, you know, when the Queen of Sheba shows up, I mean, this, everyone is impressed, including Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian officials. This is a uh, rich place. Even the northerners came down and pilfered the temple sometimes. It was gilded. It was filled with expensive jewels. It was, you know, it had all the, the golden, all the golden utensils that were utilized in the worship of God. So Solomon's temple, bigger than the tabernacle, same elements in it. Now, I want to tell you, though, that when I speak on Sundays about the temple of of Jesus's day, it's a completely different experience. It's the same basic elements. It's like the move up from the tabernacle to the temple. But when you're talking about Jesus walking by 
the temple in the first century. Remember what we had between that. In the first century BC, Herod, wanting to ingratiate himself to the Jews, poured all kinds of money into the refurbishing. We call it refurbishing, the remodeling, but it was really just a reconstruction of that entire temple. When I preached at Good Friday with the veil up a few years back. Do you remember that? The, the, the curtain. I mean, this was uh, gigantic. I couldn't even make it as big as it was as we put it here on the stage. That whole experience was gigantic compared to this. So I'm going to compare here on the screen. This is the relative size of Solomon's temple, which is bigger, significantly bigger than the tabernacle. Well, here's what Jesus was walking by every day. The Herod's temple was an elaborate structure. And so, as I said, first century 2019 BC, this construction was finished and it was massive. And it had a court, court of the Gentiles, had the court of the women, had the the inner part for the priests, and then, of course, the temple and uh, surrounding rooms. To give you a sense of comparison, let me show you here. You've got the football field. You've got the court of the tabernacles. That's the size. Here's the relative size of Solomon's temple. Here's Herod's temple. Herod's temple was massive compared to the temple in Solomon's day, quite an architectural feat. But there's one more temple talked about, and I know we're getting out of order here, but Ezekiel's going to talk about a temple that's gigantic. The temple that's described in Ezekiel that's going to be built, we call it the third temple, right? Because the first temple was Solomon's temple. We don't call Moses' temple a temple because it's not a temple, it's a tabernacle. That's a tent. Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, which we're going to see in our study tonight of the kings. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and we had... Ezra and Nehemiah talking about all that, the foundation laid, and, and we'll get to that eventually. But then we, that's the second temple now, and that second temple is not replaced with Herod's temple, at least not with a number. In my mind it is, but that's, you're going to confuse everyone because no one refers to Herod's temple as a third temple. It's the second temple refurbished. And then there's a third temple, and the third temple is the one that if you go to the Temple Institute today in Jerusalem where you talk to ardent, zealous Jews that want to rebuild the temple, they want to rebuild the temple that Ezekiel talked about, a time of great prosperity. Now, I can give you the relative sides here, but if you read carefully in the book of Ezekiel, you'll see this massive unit that sits there on the Temple Mount, which clearly fits there today, if you were to put it there. There's a lot of space on the Temple Mount, but you've got these outer chambers, this inner court, the outer court, an altar right in the center of it, but these fortresses around it. All of that is described, and I just want to give you a sense of how massive that is. Now remember, this is what the Bible says, in my eschatology, will be rebuilt on that Temple Mount, and uh, it's going to dwarf Herod's temple, and it will clearly dwarf Solomon's temple in terms of size. Ezekiel's temple. Maybe we'll have a little time to talk about that when we get to the major prophets. All right, first Kings, the division of the kingdom. Let's talk a little bit about this and what led to it. You can imagine if you have huge building projects like this and you are expanding the, you know, the palace and the, the, the temple and, and you're funding the worship in, in a massive way. You're bringing cedars from Lebanon. You know all the descriptions of this in the Bible. You're going to have to tax people heavily. And that's exactly what happened. Solomon's taxes, by the time he was building and finishing the temple and dedicating the temple, it's high time in Israel. And I tell you, it's the glory days of Israel, but it's also a time of very high taxes, which is, of course, what God told Samuel, who told the people, listen, if you get a king, and I know you want a king like all the other nations, and in God's promise back in Deuteronomy, he knew they were going to have one, and it was all a part of his plan. 
But when they were rejecting the leadership of the theocracy, which was through the prophets and the priests, and said, no, we want a political monarch, we want a king, the warning was, you know, he's going to draft all your kids into the army. You're going to have all these people that are going to have to serve the royal court. You're going to have all this money that's going to have to be collected for the standing army and for the building projects. And it's going to be exorbitant in taxes. And God warned them with all of that. And by the time Solomon is there, though it's seen as a positive period in Israel's history, uh, it was a time when people started to feel it in their pocketbook. And that created uh, a bit of unrest, as we'll see here in a second. Solomon also was compromising. And if you think of Solomon, and I don't know how you think of Solomon, it depends on how much of the Old Testament, I suppose, is enmeshed in your thinking. But, I mean, you can see him in many ways as a wise and even at times a godly person, depending on what sections of the Bible you read. If you just talk about him asking for wisdom, you think this guy is thinking rightly. He's got the right priorities. He, he's wanting not to be rich and famous. He wants to be a godly, good, judicious leader for Israel. And yet, The longer he goes, the more he starts to play the part of an ancient Near Eastern king, which is not only having a lot of, you know, building projects and doing things that that make his life much more opulent and and luxurious, but he is now engaging in what most ancient Near Eastern kings do. The more you have, the more you have to protect. And the more you have in terms of even the center of your worship being gilded with gold and huge columns and you've got this picturesque place called the Temple Mount where you put all your treasures. I mean, when this takes place, he's now got to work really hard to keep it. And to keep it, he's got to make political moves with his life so that he can make alliances with foreign nations. And the number one way to do that in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East was to marry into the family of your neighbors so that you would have family invested in those other nations where you're not going to attack them and they're not going to attack you. And that's exactly what Solomon did. It was the warning that God gave them all the way back to Deuteronomy. When you have a king, make sure he does not multiply your armies, your your people, uh, you know, your, your the horses, the chariots. Make sure he doesn't multiply wives. And that statement was not because of some uh, sexual prowess he was referring to. He was talking about the fact that you do not rely on me. You're relying on these political alliances by marrying the daughters of pharaohs and kings and Assyrians and Babylonians that would eventually come on the world scene. And God was warning them against that in Deuteronomy 17 to be specific. God didn't want them to trust in horses. He didn't want to trust them to trust in treaties with other countries. He wanted them to trust in him. So Solomon's spiritual compromise now was that he was doing what every other ancient Near Eastern king was doing. And when you start to marry into the Pharaoh's daughters or you start to marry in uh, to the ancient Near Eastern and in, in the Mesopotamian king's daughters, you also bring into your household and into your harem all these foreign gods. And that was the downfall of Solomon. He lived this kind of compromised life the older he got. Matter of fact, you can see uh, some of that confessions of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which we read back in September. Is, is this September? No, we're in October now. We read in September the book of Ecclesiastes in our daily Bible reading. That you sense this sad figure of a person who uh, did what everyone else told him to do and ended up realizing uh, that it was all vanity uh, and chasing after the wind. So on the heels of Solomon's spiritual compromise with high and exorbitant taxes, you now have a son of Solomon named Rehoboam who finds his way onto the center stage of the political scene in the Old Testament, and he is inheriting a nation with super high taxes. And there's a lot of unrest in the nation. 
and there's spiritual compromise that's behind all of this. So you have a showdown that's going to take place. The son of Solomon, Rehoboam, and a servant within Solomon's palace, his name was Jeroboam, and it starts with Rehoboam making a bad decision when he does take the power and when you're a new leader in a new position of authority everyone's going to run to you and say well this is what we want we've been waiting for you because you're going to make things the way we want them to be and so the one big thing they wanted was tax relief and Rehoboam if you might remember the story it's a good Sunday school lesson in that he confers with all the elders and the older people in his dad's cabinet all the advisors and they said look man this is a good thing for you to do lower taxes ingratiate yourself to the people Uh, we can do this we can afford to do this you need to go easy on the people and he considers that when the people are pressuring him but he goes to his contemporaries his buddies his people that are his age and the people i'm sure that had been waiting for their friend Rehoboam to become the king and they of course said no why why would you want to live less high than your father did in terms of prosperity and wealth this is your turn it's your turn now take the reins of this nation as a matter of fact you need to go further than your dad your dad was kind of a dud in areas and you can you can do so much better and and it'll be great and of course the friends were looking out after their own own interests being buddies with Rehoboam their new king So he thinks about this, but he's persuaded by his peers, and he ends up going back to the people and announcing that not only was his dad a demanding person when it came to building projects and when it came to taxes, but he was going to be worse. As a matter of fact, I've got the power now, and whatever you're uh, thinking in terms of how bad it's going to be, in terms of your burden, it's going to be worse. We're going to do bigger and better things, and my dad was nothing compared to what I'm going to be in terms of flexing my leadership. So he refuses to give the people tax relief. Well, Jeroboam was uh, wise enough, at least savvy enough, to say, I'm not going to let that happen. Matter of fact, I'm going to take my experience and my background now to create a rival nation. Because at this point, idolatry and spiritual apostasy, I can call it that, I suppose, at least I can call it spiritual compromise, was so pervasive in the culture, Rehoboam says, well, I'm going to create an alternative for the people and I will take the reins of the nation to the extent that I can. And he goes up to the northern part of the nation and says, listen, you're paying taxes and it's a long journey to get down there to where all the palaces and all the temple accoutrements are. You know, we need to come up with a different place for you to worship here in the northern part of the kingdom and all supply it. And it doesn't have to cost as much as what it was costing Solomon when you were paying all those taxes. And his son now wants to tax you even more. And so Jeroboam ends up creating an alternative worship center, which was really key to what he was going to do in succeeding. Because they weren't going to give up their identity as Jewish worshipers. They just needed a place to worship that wasn't in Jerusalem. Now, it sounds funny to to refer to it the way the Bible does. He talks about golden calves. And I I said this back when we watched Moses' brother, Aaron, so quickly seemingly depart from this worship of God to start putting together golden calves to worship. Well, we have the same thing happen with Jeroboam. But as I tried to explain in Exodus, this is not just a departure from, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not a rejection of of the worship of Yahweh. It's not the rejection of the God of the Bible. It was a hybrid, a syncretistic way to worship God. Let's take the way most people do it in the ancient world, which is to have at least a visual focus on what we can see God 
in this case, riding on top of, which is the calf, the golden calf, which is a sign of all the prosperity of the people of the ancient world. When you have these young, strong calves that are, are birthed, it's your, it's, your, it's your banknote of the ancient world. Well, uh, we will create these golden calves in the northern part of the kingdom. We'll worship the God that Moses told us to worship, but we'll do it in a way without the building. We'll do it with golden calves, and the people bought it. And so that, in essence, uh, splits the kingdom in half. And we now have two kingdoms. And we have to start thinking in terms of the kings of the north and the south. So let's do that with a chart there I put at the bottom of the worksheet on page one. Ah, the middle of the worksheet on page one. You got a chart that looks like this. This is helpful to try and keep clear what happens after the split of the kingdom. The north and the south. I already referred to it that way. And I said this to you last time we were together. If you're referring to the whole nation before this time, you'd call them Israel, the people of Israel, the children of Israel. Very common way to refer to it. But from now on, at this particular point in biblical history, by the 10th century BC, we're going to have to you be careful about the word Israel because now it's going to refer to the nation that is situated in the north. In this case, led by, initially started by the independence of it, by Jeroboam. So it's also called Ephraim, one of the primary uh, tribes of, of the north. So Israel or Ephraim. It can still be used, and often is, and I probably even used it this tonight in referring to all the people of Israel. And yet, from now on, at this particular point, most people, in a certain context at least, when we're talking about the divided kingdom, are going to use the word Israel to refer to the northern tribes. The south is going to be referred to not as Israel, although it can be if you're referring to the whole nation, but inclusively Judah, but now you're going to call it Judah. Judah becomes the name. So Ephraim, Judah, Israel, Judah, or I like to say just the north and the south is a good way to refer to it, but those are the names that we need to keep straight. Now this gets a little tricky, but the shorthand for it is there are 10 tribes that go to the north, and there are two tribes that go to the south. And I say that's a little tricky because Simeon had been absorbed into Judah. You might remember the, the maps that I gave you where Simeon becomes uh, like a, the hole in the donut down south. Benjamin also connects with Judah at this particular point. Matter of fact, technically, the dividing line between Benjamin and Judah is where you find the city of the Jebusites. You find Jerusalem, the new city of David. So you've got Benjamites that live there. You've got Levites, of course, that live there because it's the center of the worship, and that's a tribe as well. So in a sense, you could say you've got Simeon, you've got Benjamin, you've got the Levites, and of course, you've got Judah, the Judah, Judahites. So the, those, I suppose, you can say, and it's a study that we need to do, I guess we need to do, we've kind of missed the opportunity for it, but uh, to look at how the 12 tribes are broken down, there's... There's a way in which these 12 tribes are distinguished in certain settings and contexts in ways that they're not divided the same way elsewhere. Even in the book of Revelation, you might have noticed that. When it comes to the 144,000 Jews and all the 12 tribes are listed there, we have a different list of what those 12 tribes are. And you remember when we started by looking at, say, Manasseh, for instance, the sons of Joseph that ended up taking the place of Joseph, who was one of the tribes of Israel or one of the children of Israel, you can see that this gets a little muddy. Nevertheless, we've got 12 distinguishable tribes in the north, depending on how you count them, on both the east side of the Jordan River and on the west side. But what you have in the south, traditionally we say, is two tribes. But if you were there, you'd say there's Benjamites, there's Levites, the Simeonites are kind of, the Simeonites are kind of absorbed 
But Judah is what we're concerned with. And Judah was important because Judah was, of course, the tribe of David, which was promised at the end of the book of Genesis to be the tribe through which the Messiah would come. And the scepter, the ruling stick, the shebet is the Hebrew word, was not going to depart from Judah. All right. Maybe unnecessarily confuse that. Ten and two is the quick answer, the easy answer to the tribes of the north and south. The capital of the north becomes Samaria. Now, if you're reading 1 Kings carefully, you'll see early, early on, Shechem was the center of the political life in the north with Jeroboam and others. And even Terzah was another city in chapter 14 that is described as the home where one of the kings lived. Nevertheless, what became, by the time we're, when we're in the second half of 1 Kings, Samaria becomes the unrivaled capital. In 2 Kings, you see that. And from then on, and all the references you'll see in uh, Chronicles, well, Chronicles doesn't give much attention to it at all, other than a description of the enemies of Judah. Nevertheless, more on that in a minute. Samaria is the capital. That's the short answer. And Jerusalem, of course, is the capital of the south. Samaria, of course, had to set up its own worship, and eventually it becomes centralized in Samaria. If you wanted to do all the things that Moses said, you don't go to Jerusalem, because that's your hostile territory of your alienated brothers in Judah but you can go to Samaria. So Jerusalem and Samaria, capital of Judah, capital of Ephraim or Israel. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes to the south. There were 20 kings, and even this is gets a little wiggly, a co-regent, Tibni, and we'll talk about him. Not really a co-regent, he's a dual regent. The kingdom split at one point in the north, and you had a debate about who was really the king. We'll talk about that when we get there. And 20 in the south. And I say 20, but one of them was a usurper, was a queen, Queen Athaliah. And so a lot of books you're looking at, if you look at a study Bible, it might say 19 and 19. Or if they want to call Athaliah a ruler, the evil queen Athaliah, they'll say there's 20 in the south and 19 in the north. But I think the easy way to look at it, because you do have, I think, reason to say Athaliah was certainly in charge at one time in the south, and Tibni was clearly ruling half of the north at one time, we'll call it 20. And all my charts and all my teaching, 20 kings of the north and south, plus it's easier to remember that way. 10 and 2, Israel, Judah, Samaria, Jerusalem, 20 kings of the north, 20 kings of the south. Now, by the way, you'll know that the south lasts a lot longer than the north, so the reigns of the northern kings are a lot shorter. And my chart is not to scale on the back, but certainly you'll recognize by the dates we give Many of them ruled for a lot shorter period of time, although we had some long-reigning kings in the north. Dynasties, and I say that because some, I mean, I say that because there are true dynasties in that your son and grandson rule on the, on the throne. But when you get near the end of the northern kingdom, you uh, really have some of them, at least I think four of them, where they are the only people that take the throne. They don't have any descendants that sit on the throne. Nevertheless, there's nine different families that take leadership in the northern kingdom throughout the 20 kings. So a lot of, which always leads to a lot of assassinations, right? Even in any kind of history that we read. Yeah, there's still assassinations in dynasties that are singular. But the dynasty in the south, of course, is one. Why? Well, because God promised that the scepter should not depart from Judah and from David, certainly. You've got a clear promise in this Davidic covenant that you're going to have a king that's going to rule, an idealized king at the end, and it's going to come from your line. So we know that Judah is going to only have one dynasty. And that's certainly how it plays out in history. The character of the north is bad and really bad. The character in the south is bad and good. So we don't have any good examples in the north that you'd want to name your children after. 
but you do have kids in our church named after kings of the south. I don't think there's any kids in our church named after kings of the north. I should check those facts before I say that no one would ever want to do that. The north is conquered in 721. That'd be a good date to memorize by Assyria. And of course, you have that last box already memorized, do you not? 586 is the fall of the southern kingdom. I say conquered, and they were conquered. One was conquered more completely than the other. The northern kingdom was absorbed by the Assyrians. I say that, although they kept a distinct lineage to an extent. They're called the ten lost tribes of Israel. You've heard that before. And yet when we see the New Testament scene in Luke, you find people introduced to us where their tribe is identified and they're northerners. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, of course, God keeps track of all this. You don't have to have you know, Ancestry.com to test your DNA. God knows that. And he says in the end of time, you're going to have 12,000 from every tribe. So those tribes are going to be distinguished by God. And in the end, people will know what tribe they're from. And it will include all the tribes of Israel, which is an interesting list. And Dan is left out. We can talk about that another time. It'd be good for me to create a chart for you of all the distinctions in the 12 tribes and the listings of the 12 tribes and how they're used differently throughout the Bible and why, because there are reasons for it. Except for the book of Revelation, we're not sure why Dan is excluded. All right. At the very bottom, I've got three kings here, three boxes. What I don't have on the on the chart anywhere on the front or the back is some of these dates, but it'd be good for you to put some dates there. I just put lines. If you put a line through the middle box, 1000 BC, that's helpful for you to realize some of the time frames, and they will continue on as we go through the list. Saul, of course, is the first king of Israel. We've already studied him in First in Samuel, Second Samuel. We understand that if we were to give him a grade in terms of his allegiance to God, it was bad overall. I guess he gets a failing grade. He failed so badly, God had to rip the kingdom out of his hands, and he had promised him, had you done well, I would have established your lineage. Uh, Humanly speaking, of course, sovereignly, he understood he was moving to David's line, and yet Saul was a failure. He had his bright spots early on. His reign lasted for 40 years, So, just to give us some context here. David, of course, is the man after God's own heart, so we'll give him a passing grade, even though he was a murderer and adulterer. These were episodic events and not patterns of his life. And that is a distinction, is it not? I mean, who is there, as Job says, without sin? First John chapter 1, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. It's how we respond to those sins and whether they become enslaving sins to us or whether we get through them like David did with confession and penitence. So David is a good king. Humanly speaking, we know he represents what God would like to see in all of us, no matter how badly we fail, that we come to him in repentance. His reign also is 40 years in Israel. So if we were writing their names down and trying to distinguish them for the rest of the kings, we might put a U next to their name, at least I do, Saul of the United Kingdom, David of the United Kingdom, and Solomon is the last king of the United Kingdom. Now, if you said, how do I view him? You've already talked about him tonight, kind of starting so well and ending so poorly. Well, let's just give him a good, bad grade then. He starts well, and there's a lot of things that we would say are significant in terms of his godliness, even if you read his books, right, The, the Proverbs of Solomon. Not every proverb in there he wrote, but many of them he did. And in Kings, it says he's responsible for hundreds and hundreds of proverbs that he wrote. And certainly there's many things that he did that were positive. But he ended poorly, like some of the kings we're going to look at tonight. Solomon, his reign was also 40 years. So this is interesting how God in the United Kingdom has this take place 40, 40, and 40, which is all substantiated as we look at the timelines and connect them to various things, like I said last week, to an eclipse here or something that we can track in another kingdom next door. All right, 
let's fill this in now. And I put the Kings of the South to the left, which I think some other screen I just put up, I mixed that up a little bit, and I'm sorry if I did that without thinking. Rehoboam, son of Solomon. He was 40 years old, 41 years old when he became the king. Of course, we just heard his story. He wanted to up the power, the exercise of his power, flexing his muscles, particularly in the economic sphere in Israel, and that was his downfall. And we would say he's a bad king because he did not only not look to the wisdom of the people of his nation, but he was in no way a good example of what God was looking for in the throne of Israel. And any good we did see in him, which was minor, it all drained away after the establishment of the kingdom. He fights with Egypt. He fights with Jeroboam, of course. He's in skirmishes. Not a man who trusted in God. He reigned for 17 years on the throne in the south. Of course, his counterpart in the north was Jeroboam. Jeroboam the first. We have Jeroboam in the northern kingdom twice, so we have to distinguish the two of them. We talk about King Jeroboam. Usually we think of the first one, King Jeroboam, who was the rival to Rehoboam, but we'll call him the first. He, of course, was bad, and some are very bad, but let's just call him bad. He reigned for 22 years, longer than Rehoboam. This was dynasty number one, Solomon's servant. He wasn't Solomon's son. He was the one who made the golden calves and an interesting life. Solomon at one time even tried to kill Jeroboam, but anyway, turned on the family of the king. Abijah is the next king on our list. Abijah is Solomon's grandson, Rehoboam's son. Uh, He was also at the beginning of his reign fighting against Jeroboam, and that makes sense, right? He's got four years, five years at the beginning of his reign where he's also mad and hoping to reunite or at least overcome his nemesis, his dad's nemesis. He was also a bad king. There's nothing virtuous about his reign. He only reigned for three years as he takes the end of that period of Jeroboam. I guess not even the full end. He's got a couple years left as Jeroboam's still on the throne. In the north, the second king, Nadab. He's the son of Jeroboam. It's the first dynasty, as I said. Uh, He's known for worshiping idols, as we'll often see in the northern kingdom. Uh, He's assassinated by the next king that comes along, Basha, we'll look at in a second, which starts the second dynasty. So it's a dynasty, but it's only a dynasty for two two generations, a father and a son. Nadab's bad. He reigns for only two years. Bad in two. Basha is the one who assassinated him, as long as we're talking about the transition of power here. A lot of assassinations in the northern kingdom. He's also bad, and very bad, I suppose. If you talk about the beginning of his reign, he reigns for 24 years. It's interesting when you read about the length of time that they reign. Oftentimes, you'll see God's judgment on who he puts in power and how he's feeling about, not feeling, but how he's responding to the sin of the people. And sometimes he'll pick the worst king to reign for the longest period of time when he's very frustrated with the nation as, uh, as a whole. Asa, we finally have a, a good king who's starting to resurrect the example of David in the throne of Israel. He reigns for 41 years. And again, this is a good sign as God starts to bless the people by giving them a good long tenure for King Asa. He, by the way, has to defend himself against Basha. Basha is warring against the southern kingdom. Actually, he's got a lot of descendants of Jeroboam that he has to fight, and he does so well, and God commends him for it. And you can see, I, this is not, not to scale, of course, but I have to lengthen his reign as we have a quick series of kings in the north. Eli in the north, Basha's son, uh, not much to say about him. He's a bad king and he only reigns for two years. And his is a sad situation because Zimri assassinates him and we have the third dynasty. So the dynasties are coming quickly here. Zimri is a bad man. He's bad not only because he usurps the position of leadership, but he goes around systematically killing Elah's family. 
and everybody that uh, was from Bash's family, family, the Bash's descendants. But he didn't last long, seven days. But he, may, he does, a lot of, does a lot of damage in seven days. Tibni, I said, is the one that some people don't count as a king because he is ruling in the northern, he's ruling half of the northern kingdom. Omri, who we're going to look at next, ruled the other half and is often considered the legitimate king. And yet I list them both because he clearly had authority and power and hailed himself a king. And since God was not picking between them, um, we'll call him a king here. Five years, bad king. Omri was the king, established for twice the length of time, over twice the length, for 11 years, and um, starts dynasty number four, if you want to star that. He was the captain of Zimri's army, and the Israelites wanted him to be king. The Bible says at this particular point in Israel's history, he was the most evil king. He was more evil than his fathers had been. Omri was an idolater and a purveyor of false religion in Israel. Ahab is one you know, I assume. He's the son of Omri, so you got a bad dad with a really bad son, and he marries someone that you know. Who's Ahab's wife? Jezebel, Queen Jezebel. So I should have put very bad in that box, but I didn't have enough room. Makes a bad choice in terms of his bride, and God gives him 21 years. I should say he punishes the people for 21 years with the terrible leadership of Ahab. Marries Jezebel, he worships Baal. Baal becomes a very important counter figure to God's leadership in the nation. And after just saying that God had said Omri was more sinful than his fathers had been, now Ahab earns that same title in the text of, of 1 Kings, and he's called more evil than all the previous kings that came before him. We know Ahab's story much about it because of Elijah's ministry took place during this time, and Elijah uh, was weaved into the narrative of Ahab's life. And you might remember some of the interesting scenes. Next time you read through 1 Kings, you get a taste of all that was going on there. So ends up being killed in battle and dies. Jehoshaphat, it'd be good to put the date down. Now we're reaching the middle of the ninth century, 850 BC. Jehoshaphat becomes the king. He's 35 years old when he becomes the king. He's good, at least for a while, and then he's bad. He's good in that he starts to do what is right and turns his heart toward God, but he doesn't remove the high places in the land, and God was zealous to clean the land of, of these false places of worship. And you'll see this throughout the kings of the, of the south. Many of them had a revival of sorts, but they weren't willing to offend the nation by taking down their, their worship sites of the false gods. He reigned for 25 years, Jehoshaphat. He reigned during Ahab's wicked reign and ends up having to deal with Ahab throughout his, his leadership in the south. Ahaziah is the next king. He's Ahab's son. He also worships Baal. He's very evil. And this is where the book of First Kings come to an end. Matter of fact, it even, I think, starts the first verse or the first paragraph of Second Kings about his injury. He falls down and dies of his injuries, uh, and he only reigned for one year. Ahab's son, and God took him out early. So now, in the middle of this chart that we've started, we should give you a little bit of information about Second Kings because Ahaziah, I told you the king of the north, was the end of the book of First Kings. Well, now we have Second Kings beginning and the main concept there, because we did it on the timeline at the beginning of our study, we said captivity is the key concept. And if you want one word, that's it, captivity, captivity of God's people. Uh, you have it both in the north in 721 and in the south in 586. Of course, the one that God keeps his attention on as we move toward Christ is the southern kingdom of Judah. And nevertheless, it's not wrong to say that the northern tribes went into captivity because we see them, some of them come back and maintain their identity enough 
by the time you get to the first century AD, when Jesus is there, some people know their identity and their tribe's heritage. Nevertheless, most of them intermarried and became the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the interbred northern tribes who married with the Assyrians who took them in the 8th century BC and conquered the north. Key chapters, as we said, have to be two because we have captivity both the north and the south. We'll call it the fall of the north. In 721, in chapter 17, and in the fall of the south in chapter 25 and 586. Those are good numbers to remember. 2 Kings 17, 2 Kings 25. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria, 721, and the southern kingdom, the two tribes, fall to Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Very, very simple outline of the book. You've got, as I promised, the divided kingdom part two. And then because the northern kingdom goes away, you could say the second half of the book, chapters 18 through 25, is the single kingdom. So you've got the united kingdom in contradistinction to the single kingdom. The single kingdom is not a united kingdom because now the ten tribes are gone. They're not gone in God's book, but they're gone from the history books of the Old Testament. Divided kingdom part two, chapters 1 through 17, the single kingdom of Judah because the north is gone, chapters 18 through 25. Simple enough. The time frame in this book, it begins with King Ahaziah. Was the time frame. Second Kings starts with the death of King Ahaziah in the north. He's the king to the north. In 853, we had that 850 marker up, but he dies in 853. The capture King Zedekiah, I guess I should have put an S next to his name. I meant to. King of the south in 586. And you know that date. That's when the Babylonian captivity officially starts. I mean, there's a lot going on before that, as we'll see, but 586. So that time frame... Uh, is 267 years. Is that right? Is that the right math there? Yes, right? Yeah, so that's a long time. You take that and add it to the first kings, you've got a long, long period. We call these books in the Old Testament the history books. These are books of history. Well, this is a lot of history we're covering. That's longer than the history of our country. Okay, like studying the presidents, I suppose. So let's keep going. We'll resume our, our take on the kings of Israel. And note the dates there in the middle. You'll have to add those yourself. Joram. Joram was the son of Ahab, who, of course, we saw one of his sons die quickly. He's not as evil as his father, thankfully, and he didn't die quickly like his brother, but he rules for 11 years in the north. Now, this gets confusing because ruling at the same time is Jehoram, and that gets a little confusing for people because even a variant on this, matter of fact, some people will say it's the same name, Joram and Joram, ruling at the same time in the north and the south. But the guy in the south, they called him Jehoram, okay? That makes it confusing when you read that section of first, uh, Second Kings, but keep them distinct in your mind. Yes, it's at the same time, two kings with almost identical names. But the ESV and the references in the text, I think uniformly will use the distinct spellings of their name. Jehoram is not a good king. He reigns only for seven years, but he does reign contemporaneously with Joram. Uh, he died of uh, disease. Elijah is uh, still ministering during this time and his ministry interacts with Jehoram. Ahaziah is the next king. He's 42 years old when he gets started. He only reigns for one year. He and Israel's king were killed by Jehu, as we'll see in a minute. More on Athaliah coming up next. But we'll go over and talk about Jehu next. Jehu's a bad king, reigns for 28 years. He's the fifth dynasty, if you want to put a star by his name. That's the fifth um, family to take over the throne in the north. Elisha actually was the one told to anoint him as the king. So God had a hand in this. Now remember this, Ahab's family, anytime you have a change in the dynasty, there's usually a lot of bloodshed. And sure enough, even though he's 
given the imprimatur of Elisha to be the king, he ends up going out and he takes 70 of Ahab's sons that are still alive and kills them all. It's interesting that Jehu almost earned a good rating, at least when you see him go out, not for killing Ahab's sons, although that was a favor, I suppose, to the north. He destroys the altars of Baal. He makes a break from his father's idolatry, at least the kind of idolatry that was engaged in some of the flagrant things that went on with Baal worship. But he didn't get rid of the golden calves. That was the initial compromise of the north with Jeroboam. And so he gets back to that place of compromise um, worship. So it's interesting. He gets rid of the worst of it, but he still engages in what God had rejected long before. Now, Queen Athaliah comes on the heels of Ahaziah's reign in the south. She's the mother of Ahaziah. She usurps the throne at this particular point. She's bad. She's very bad. If the box were bigger, I'd say that, I suppose. Very bad. She leads for seven years, but she's a usurper of the throne. She is Ahaziah's mother, and she ends up wanting all the power for herself. So she she kills all of her own grandchildren, believe it or not. Kills Ahaziah's kids so that she can be the unrivaled leader of the nation. She's killed by a palace guard at the end of her reign, the end of the seventh year there when her grandson is exposed. There's one son left that she didn't know about that was hidden away. His name is Joash. We'll get back to that story in a minute. Jehoiahaz in the north is also bad king. We're used to that. He reigns for 17 years, uh, not Assyria, but Syria is the nemesis at this particular time and ends up overrunning much of his kingdom. And he looks like he may even do in the north, maybe the time that the north goes away, but God spares the nation when he calls out for help and finally cries uncle when he has enough political problems. Joash was the one kid that was tucked away who was now brought out and hailed the king. The palace guard kills the queen mother, Athaliah, and Joash, a seven-year-old, becomes the king. Of course, he was not ruling on his own. He had all kinds of advisors and like any seven-year-old, I suppose, in a monarch, he becomes the king. He's not doing much administration. He starts out good and he has a lot going for him in that he destroyed any references to Baal in his part of the nation. But much like Jehu, he doesn't get rid of many of the high places. They don't worship the golden calf, but they have places of compromised cultic worship and he does not destroy those. But God gives him a gracious reign of 40 years And in that time, he did a lot of good for the nation, but he himself was compromised. And yet it's a fascinating story in the transfer of power from Ahaziah to Athaliah, Athaliah killing her grandchildren and Joash coming out of the shadows and being hailed the king. So we're into the turn of the ninth century right here as we've reached this particular spot. Jehoash, Jehoash is a bad king. He reigns for 16 years. He fought against Judah during his his reign. He was not a good king. Not a lot I can say about him. Amaziah started out good. He was 25 years old. A lot of these kings here, as we'll see from this point on, a lot of them start their reign very early. He was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of God to a great extent in terms of what he was willing to avoid in his nation. And yet he, like the others, wasn't willing to tear down all the places of worship that weren't rival worship to the worship in Jerusalem. And at the end of his life, he starts worshiping other gods. He reigns for 29 years and has a lot of internal fighting in his reign. Actually lost some of the utensils and items in the temple. And at the end of his reign, it was a bit of a disaster. And I feel like he took a big step back. The Levites weren't happy with him. Jeroboam II, this is our second reference to a guy named Jeroboam in the north. 
Amos prophesies during this period. We'll get to the minor prophets, I hope, and we'll talk about their role. Jeroboam II is bad. He reigns for a long time. Jonah's running off to Nineveh at this point. Nineveh is the power that is rising and a dominant world power. Jeroboam II. Uzziah, also known as Azariah, but more commonly known as Uzziah, in part because of that very famous passage in Isaiah 6. talks about during the reign of King Uzziah. Actually, it speaks of the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah is active during this period of time. You might remember his story. He's good in many ways, and God gives him a very lengthy 52-year reign as the king. He starts at age 16, in the middle of his teenage years, but he doesn't fully clear the land from all of these alternative places of worship and these cultic high places, as they're called. But the scene in his life when he much like Saul, decides to take on the priestly role. And what he does is he goes into the temple as a king from Judah and acting like a Levite, burns incense in the temple. And if you remember that story, just when he does this and he finishes usurping this role that God had reserved for the Levites, he breaks out with leprosy on his forehead and his body. And of course, in those days, I mean, this was even today, I suppose, you're put into a leper colony and he is banned from from his role for a long time. Zechariah ministered during this period of time, and he had to have a co-regent reign his son during this period. We'll look at him next on the next page. But King Uzziah, when he sought God in his reign, he prospered. But at times you saw him get too comfortable in his position and start to cross the lines. Zechariah, this is not the prophet. This is Zechariah the king, king of the north. He's bad. Zechariah the prophet is good. He only reigned for six months. Most people hear the word Zechariah, they think of the prophet. And that's good because this was pretty much a non-player. This is the final descendant of, of Jehu to reign. So we're about to end this dynasty here in the north. He ends up getting assassinated because when the dynasty changes, you know someone is dying in the palace. Shalom ends up killing him. Zechariah, bad, six months. Shalom is the one who does him in. Dynasty number six now. This is the sixth dynasty that he starts. Kills Zechariah and ends up being assassinated. I call it a dynasty. This is one of those where it's just one generation. Not even a generation, it's a month. He's a bad king, kills his predecessor, and within a month, he is killed. Jotham in the, in the, in the south is the king. And he, not that he's a king for a particularly long time. He's king for 16 years. But because the end of the northern kingdom is starting to spit out kings really quickly, I had to expand his box here a little bit for you. Jotham is a king that starts young, 25 years old. He starts to um, do some reform in the land. His father, Uzziah or Azariah, his real name, Uzziah, his nickname. He ends up having to be a co-regent for his dad when his dad had leprosy and was sequestered away and couldn't rule. So he had a little experience, but he actually began his official reign at 25. But they looked to him as the king when his dad was sick. Menahem was the king for 10 years. He was bad. Menahem was dynasty number seven, if you're keeping track. He was cruel. He killed not only his political rivals, but his critics, was bloodthirsty and... Actually, we could say he was a very bad king. My box is too small for that. Pekahiah, Pekiah, evil king, only reigned for two years. Kings are coming now at the end, quickly as we'll see. And God is preparing them for their punishment, for all their idolatry. Pekah was a bad king, served for 20 years. I guess there's an exception to it. You got one month, 10 years, two years, 20 years. So that is a bit of a reign, I suppose. And this dynasty, number eight, new dynasty here. There's only one more dynasty to go. He gets assassinated by Hoshea. Hoshea is a bad king, reigns for nine years, but basically it's, uh, I mean, this is all, we're, we're all done. We've got 
Assyria was ready to pounce on them. Actually, to pounce on the south, too, with Ahaz, the king, who was a bad king, served for 16 years. He was serving during the time of the fall of the north in 721. He started reigning at age 20. Matter of fact, he should be called very bad if you have room to put that down, probably because he went to the extremes that we saw in Judges, and that is he was sacrificing his children, not to Moloch, that was during the period of the Judges, but in this case to Baal. Desecrated the vessels in the temple, made everybody mad. Made God mad, made the Levites bad, made the women in Israel who saw the cruelty to his own family mad. Everyone was mad at Ahaz. Hezekiah came next. You know that name, I suppose. We don't name our kids that, but you could. Hezekiah was a good king of the south, a bright spot. Age 25, he starts to reign. He's such a bright spot, according to 2 Kings 18.5, that he's said to be uh, more righteous than any king that had come before him, most righteous according to God. 2 Kings 18.25, not accepting David, of course, but the reign of the kings in the divided kingdom. Took down the high places. He repaired the temple. Uh, He even went out. He was the one, Hezekiah, that saw the people worshiping the bronze snake that Moses had made so many years previously. Think about this. This is the 8th century BC, and you had from the 15th century this bronze snake that was made in the wilderness that was kept and traveled around in the tabernacle all those years, and now people are worshiping that, and he has it destroyed. He says it's not worth that, Uh, not worth having a relic from some important red-letter day in Israel's history. So he destroys that brass serpent. People were worshiping it. The Assyrians besieged him during that time, you'll remember. We talk about Hezekiah's tunnel. He ends up figuring out a way to not only trust in God and pray to God for help, but be wise about the defense of Jerusalem, and God delivers him. Isaiah is still ministering during this time of Hezekiah's reign. And he had a long reign as some of you, or a long ministry, as some of you know, from uh, adult Sunday school class where we taught on Isaiah. So the north is gone, the south is all that's left, and we've got a few kings to go. Manasseh, after such a godly father, you've got the worst king to date. Matter of fact, he becomes so corrupt that he earns that title. Yeah, from the godliest king to the worst king. Starts out well with a good home life, I suppose. But he ends up rebuilding the high places that were destroyed that his father had taken down. He ends up building altars to foreign gods in the temple. This is how brazen he was. During his reign, God promised at that particular point when Manasseh was such a horrible king and all the people were apparently supportive of his compromise that he was going to destroy the southern kingdom and take them into captivity, not destroy them completely because he couldn't, he had promised he wouldn't. But from this point on, we were just running out the clock in terms of God's punishment on the south. Ammon, bad king, two years, short reign, 22 years old, killed by one of his own servants. Josiah, another bright spot, a good king. Some kids in our church named Josiah. Reigned for 31 years. He begins at age eight, you might remember, when the uh, assassination of Amnon takes place. You've got Josiah, doing incredible things, restoring the temple, turns to God, the Bible says, wholeheartedly. With his whole heart, he turns to God. Unfortunately, though, the people who followed the king seemed to only follow him superficially, and there wasn't a real heartfelt turn to God in the nation, but certainly was in the palace. He founds the law of God in the temple renovations, remember that, and enforces all of God's new laws. You've got to keep the, the festivals as he reads it, discovers it. There's just a reinvigorated worship that starts in the palace but it didn't last in the nation. Yeah, Jeremiah at this point has started his ministry and is interacting with the king of uh, the reign of Josiah. Now we've got four kings left. There's a lot going on here. Uh, you only got 25 
years to go. The Assyrians were starting to fall to the Babylonians. The Battle of Carchemish was taking place in 605, which is the pivotal transition of power from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. And so in the world stage, a lot's happening here as we start to see God keeping his promise to Manasseh and the people that he's going to destroy them. Jehoiahaz, bad king, only reigns for three months. He's aged, his age is 23. He's jailed by Egypt's pharaoh, has his nephew Jehoiakim reign in his place. Jehoiakim is actually his nephew. He reigns for 11 years. He starts at 25. He's the son of Josiah. In 605, after the battle of Carchemish, you had Babylon looking to dominate everywhere. They came to, came to Jerusalem and confronted Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim had no choice but to submit to them. This wasn't the fall of Jerusalem. What it was was the taxation of Jerusalem, and they became uh, subjugated to the Babylonians who were looking to dominate every part of the world they could get their hands on. At one point during Jehoiakim's 11-year reign, he refused to pay the taxes to Nebuchadnezzar, who came back in 597 and demanded that they do, and they had to. Jehoiachin, much like Jehoiahaz, only reigned for three months. He was just a kid when he was given the reins, at least officially, to the nation. During this period of time, you've got Zedekiah, who's 21, ends up having to, again, well, he refuses to pay taxes for a time, but he's forced to, and he does, and he does for a period of time until the very end of his reign when he starts to stand up to the Babylonians, which was not a good idea. You had a third deportation of people, and the monarchy ends. The captivity at this point is officially on. Nebuchadnezzar not only comes and says, you're my vassal, you are subject to me, but he destroys the temple. And when that took place, the people knew all the promises of the prophets had come true. As we'll see, the prophets that prophets prophesied so often that if you continue in your worship and the high places in your idolatry, God is going to take your nation down. And the symbol of that takedown officially in 586 was the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. First and second Chronicles. Main concept here is simply a compilation of the history of all that took place in the monarchy. From first Samuel through second Kings, we see the rise of Samuel's call to David. Ultimately, the focus is on David and his generations. You have all the way through the end of Second Kings. So you have a book that is written seemingly to encourage the captives who have come back to Israel after the 70-year captivity. So now they're in Judah again. I say Israel, but I meant Judah, of course, I'm using that word broadly. And they come back. And so we assume that this is written to hearten them, that their history is to be remembered. And their kings, they had their highs and lows based on their obedience to God, and they were going to, for once, resolve as a nation, we're never going to find ourselves being idolaters again. So they were very sensitive to all of that. Yeah, there's a, there's a mention in First Chronicles 3 about six generations from, from Zerubbabel, counting after Zerubbabel. So it gives us a date, and we're going to talk about the date in a minute. Let's talk about the author. It certainly puts us in the time frame of Ezra, and that is what tradition has always said, is that Ezra was probably the writer or the compiler of all the history in First and Second Chronicles. Uh, the date then, if that's true, and it seems to be that it fits, especially because of the reference in First Chronicles 3 about how many generations from Zerubbabel, six, that this is probably written around 450. And if you take 586 minus 70, I mean, you can see this is after the return to the, um, to the land and the rebuilding of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to get to real soon. Outline of this book is super simple. You've got in First Chronicles, we'll just make an outline of both these books. Genealogies in the first nine chapters. It's the hard part to read in our DBR because it's just a bunch of names. But it's important, of course, as they've come back to the land, they need to know their history and who they were. Chapter 10, Saul gets very short 
reference. Matter of fact, I didn't even mention him when I talked about Chronicles trying to focus on David. You can see Saul gets one chapter and David gets 11 through 29, chapters 11 through 29. Second Chronicles, Chronicles Solomon here, super important in the building of the temple. And then all the rest of the book in Second Chronicles is the kings of Judah. No references, or I should say no coverage of the kings of the north because what's important to the returning exiles to the land of Judah is the kings of Judah. And that's where they saw the covenant promises to David all being fulfilled. So this is not going to chronicle any of the northern kings. So a lot of the information we get about the southern kings is supplemented in First and Second Chronicles, primarily Second Chronicles. And all we have of the northern kings is found in the prophets to the north, Hosea and Amos, and some references in Isaiah and Jeremiah and other references we talk about the northern king. But all the rest of it comes from, from the kings, first and second kings. We don't get any of it from the Chronicles. Chronicles is not interested in that. That was a bit tedious tonight, and I apologize for that. But some of these names that you get through first and second kings, I think, are helpful to put in some kind of historic context. And next time you're reading through a prophet in particular, when you're not reading sequentially through the history of Israel be good to pull this little chart out that you filled in tonight and find out where they were on the timeline. All right, let me pray and let you out five minutes early. God, thank you very much for helping us do this work that is filled with the details of what we have to at least cover. All these people covering these uh, hundreds of years in biblical history have played an important role in your working through the leadership of human beings, showing us the frailty of human beings and the sin of human beings and the tendency to compromise that we human beings have. And God, we uh, read these things knowing that as the New Testament says, that all scripture is is profitable for teaching and, and correction and training in righteousness. And so we know there's a lot in there that we can't get to in terms of how to extract that profit. But tonight we're here to build a framework for these two books, actually these four books, and to recognize that uh, there's a lot of good material in there. We get around to our DBR reading every year to think about how these lives, real lives, some of them uh, reigning for over 50 years on a throne in, in, in a kingdom, filled with everyday hassles and problems and threats and, and uh, violence and taxation and building projects and natural disasters and wars, but are things that we've always dealt with. As the Bible says, we're just prone to those in this existence that we now have. And we can see how people made mistakes that we can avoid. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written for our instruction as an example that we are not to follow many of the passages that we read in the Old Testament, particular, particularly in First and Second Kings. So Allow these things, I pray, to empower our everyday Christian life, knowing that the ultimate king that we long for is the son of David, as he's called, the one on whom the government is going to rest on his shoulders, the one who is going to rule in peace on this world and establish it all around the world. We look forward, God, to the day that happens. And we know your promise is that it could take place, it could begin at any moment when you take up your church and start the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and then the arrival of the new Jerusalem. So God, prepare our hearts for that and get us ready for that. As we look back, let it be the catalyst for us to look forward with great anticipation. Thanks for this crowd and thanks for their willingness to learn. Thanks for all those that view online and uh, deal with this recorded material that they might strengthen their knowledge of your word, that they might be good students that uh, show themselves approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, people that rightly handle the word of truth. Let us be good at that, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.